Our mission here at the Ambassadors Forum is to equip you to be able to answer life's hard questions the same way Jesus did. Today I'm interviewing one of the speakers from our upcoming apologetics conference on October 8th and 9th. You can visit our website at theambassadorsforum.com for more information and to register. Neil Shenvey started his apologetics ministry to help Christians get a better understanding of the evidence for Christianity and to help atheists and agnostics think through the claims of Christianity. He's recognized for his amiable and gracious approach, his desire to accurately represent those who disagree with him, and his effort to understand opposing positions. Neil graduated with an A.B. in chemistry from Princeton, a Ph.D. in theoretical chemistry at UC Berkeley, and was a postdoc at Yale. In 2015, he quit his job as a research scientist at Duke to homeschool his four children. Neil, welcome to the program. Hi, Roy. Thank you. So, Neil, you spoke at our apologetics conference last year to a packed audience on the subject of what is critical theory and is it compatible with Christianity? You were teaching on this subject long before most people in the culture had even heard of it. And now it seems like it's in the general vocabulary of just about everybody in America. How important has it been to be very precise in discussing this topic? Has the conversation around you changed because people are becoming more precise and more educated on the topic? Well, yeah, language is always an issue. So years ago, when I was talking about the subject, the common term that was being used was cultural Marxism. And I always try to convince people not to use that term and not because it was wrong, but because it was also associated with conspiracy theories. So these literal neo-Nazis had this crazy conspiracy theory that they termed cultural Marxism. If you Googled cultural Marxism, you'd find whole Vox articles dedicated to debunking the idea of cultural Marxism. Uh, so I was saying, look, guys, it's not about whether it's accurate or inaccurate. It's about the perception. Sure. And years ago, the Gospel Coalition's journal Themelios published a long-form 10,000-word article basically saying, yes, cultural Marxism is a real phenomenon. It's an academic term. It's been used for decades. It's not just a conspiracy theory. It also is this well-known field of study dating back to the basically Frankfurt School. The funny thing is, because I know the primary literature, you can find people, the actual critical social theorists themselves, using these terms somewhat interchangeably. Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term intersectionality and critical race theory, she coined both terms. Hmm. At one point in an essay, she says that today, race scholarship and critical race theory are kind of synonymous. Hmm. Robin DiAngelo, the best-selling author of White Fragility, you know, she on her website, she calls herself a critical race and social justice educator. And yet I'll still see some Christians denying that she's a critical race theorist. Here's the thing. So in practice, in the actual literature, these terms are very fluid. Hmm. The reason it's important to be precise is because it's strategic. If you are precise in your terminology, they can't accuse you of being sloppy. Because oftentimes people want to debate the terms used and not the ideas. So I always try to turn the conversation back to the ideas themselves because that's where the problems are. And frankly, the other thing I'm seeing is that the terms do evolve from people that are promoting these ideas. So when they realize that they can't use the term, say, critical race theory anymore, they'll just call it culturally responsive education or something else. <laughs> you pick your term. Pick, yes. and they'll just relabel this, repackage the same old ideas. And so if you attack the ideas rather than the labels, then they can't simply slap a new label on it. 
Hmm. You've obviously done hundreds, if not thousands of hours of research and published your own articles on this. And even you are like, hey, the terms are changing all the time. I think for the general churchgoer in the pew, it's almost impossible to keep up. What would you say to them? You know, if they're like, look, I just, I can't even keep up with the terms. They keep changing. I don't know what they all mean. Do you have some practical advice for Handel to kind of get them in the game? Yeah, the best label to use, I think, today is critical social justice because it doesn't have the baggage of critical race theory, which gets tossed around as like everything. I am not saying that because I want to avoid attacking CRT or critical theory. It's because I want to cut down to the real issues, which are the ideas. What they're going to do is they're just going to call it something else, and then you're going to be at a loss again for what am I supposed to criticize? So critical social justice, it's not nearly as commonly used, but I think it really is the most accurate term for what colloquially is called wokeness, woke ideology. In the literature, occasionally you'll see it referred to as critical social justice. The four key ideas of critical social justice or wokeness, first the social binary that's a society is divided into oppressed groups and oppressor groups along lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, physical ability, and age. Second idea is hegemonic power, the idea that oppression occurs not just through cruelty or tyranny or coercion, but through ideas, that ideas that are imposed on culture by the dominant ruling class, whether it's whites or men or heterosexuals or the able-bodied, those ideas are oppressive because they mm. cast certain groups as normal as good, as valuable, and all the other groups are labeled as perverse or different or exotic. Mm -hmm. So that hegemonic power to impose your values, your group's values and norms on culture is what creates oppression. And the third idea is lived experience, that through lived experiences of, of marginalized groups, they can see reality better. They're better able to read the world. And so that we ought to defer then to the lived experiences of oppressed groups, again, whether it's women or LGBTQ people or the disabled. And then finally, the end goal of all of this is social justice, which critical social justice defines as eliminating all forms of social oppression, whether it's based on a person's race, class, gender, ethnicity, physical ability, et cetera. It's a quote from Mary McClintock's essay. Mm. So those are the four ideas. Mm. What I like about this is that word justice, <laughs> that's a biblical term, right? And so if you start there and you label this critical social justice, on the one hand, you're acknowledging that something's broken in the world, you mm-hmm. know, whether it's oppression or these groups exactly along these lines, you know, you can further discuss. But I like that idea of starting with, we all know something's wrong. It's one of the main messages of the Bible. Things are not right. We know we live in a fallen world. Sin has really destroyed relationship between each other, between us and God. It kind of opens the door for us to go straight to the Bible and say, and you know what? There's a good solution for that. How do you characterize critical social justice? So I think the best characterization is a worldview because it answers the big questions. You know, worldview is any sort of big story about life, the universe, and everything. Because he answers the questions like, who am I? Mm, What's the problem with the world? How do I solve the world's problems? What what are my moral duties? What is good and evil? How do I know the truth? So a worldview answers all those questions related to basic issues. So it answers questions like, who am I? Well, you're a member of these various social groups locked in a struggle for dominance. What is the problem with 
life. Certain groups have imposed their norms and values on culture, and they've convinced us all that these norms and values are actually objective and neutral and natural and even God-ordained when they are not. They're merely justifications for their own power. And what's the purpose of life? What's ethical and moral? The answer is seeking social justice defined as dismantling these hegemonic norms, showing that they're simply bids for power and then dismantling these unjust systems and structures. That's the moral duty of all of us. If we're a privileged person, then our duty is to divest ourselves of our privilege, whether it's white privilege or male privilege or Christian privilege, or if we're part of an oppressed group, we're obligated to seek to dismantle these unjust structures through activism, through political power, through protest. I really find it difficult that people don't see this as a religion or as a pseudo-religion. It's giving them people a sense of meaning and purpose. I mean, you can turn anything into a religion, quote unquote, but this is going deeper than that. It's not just enthusiasm. It's that it's telling you about who you are, what your purpose in life is, and what the sort of this arc of history looks like. We're heading to a journey towards diversity, equity, inclusion. I see. And you need to get on the right side of history. It sounds like there is a ultimate salvation, a solution to the problem, which is nobody has more power than anybody else. But practically, it seems like you never really would ever achieve that. You know, so let's just pick men and women. If men are considered to be in power now, then you need to equalize that. But you're never going to equalize it. What you're going to do is you're going to replace it with something else, some other group that's in power. So it seems like you're kind of stuck in this continual revolution where you never really reach a solution? Or or do they see it differently? I think Freire himself said that any revolution has to be perpetual. You have to constantly seek out new injustices that you are blind to and then find ways to find equity. That seems to be a very Western-centric perspective that whites have more power than other colored people. What about in other cultures across the world probably the majority of the world population, India, China, Africa, do they flip the narrative or how does that work into the conversation? So through post-colonial studies, they have addressed that issue. So say I nailed up Kenya. Kenya is 99% African descent people and 1% non-African. So they're clearly Africans and people we would see as quote unquote black would be in the majority and the president of all the positions of power. So post-colonial studies argues that even though these countries might have a majority of people of color and leadership and everything, and yet the tentacles of colonialism have shaped the way they view themselves, their very systems. And so whiteness, they would say, is a global project and that through colonial powers, whiteness has become a sort of a global way of viewing reality so that in every culture, There are these insidious ways in which Eurocentric standards have snuck into the cultures and we have to eradicate them. And so that's one aspect of it. So again, they they would trace it back to colonialism in the 19th century and 20th century. So how would they describe Kenya in the 1500s before colonialism or anything? Would they say, yes, in Kenya in the 1500s was Africans really were in power and that needed to be changed? That needed to be overthrown? So yeah, they are very big on contextual analysis. So they don't analyze. They would say that every social binary is local to some culture. 
So if they if you press them and said, well, tell me about Africa in the 15th century, they would say, yeah, okay, technically in that culture, uh, maybe the social binary looked different. It's not that there were whites oppressing Kenyans then, because there were no whites in Kenya. Right. You'd have one tribe oppressing some other tribe back then. So they'd still view it through the social binary lens, but they would simply say every I culture see. is different. But they'd say, but because of globalism, because of colonialism, today, all cultures feel the impact of whiteness. Uh, so, and actually I've talked to people, I've, had, I've given talks to people in, in Ghana, in Kenya, in South Africa, and unfortunately we exported critical race theory to those countries and they are actually very disturbed by it because they're seeing their students buy into this really pathological worldview. They look around, they're like, this, first of all, doesn't make much sense in our culture. So in their culture, actually, <laughs> well, they, were, they were saying that we do get some of the, you know, the colonialists, like Christianity, in their context, the argument is Christianity is a white man's religion. It's Eurocentric, right? We've heard it here too, but within their context, they're like, it's being, this language is saying that your missionaries are imposing your foreign values on us when really, ideally, Christianity is about not any one culture's values, but God's values, right? right. God's giving us all norms and standards and his law. And we're all accountable to that, whether we come from America or you know, Tanzania or anywhere. But and the other thing they said is that the same lens is being applied to other social categories that we don't even have in the States. So, for example, I think it was in Kenya, they were saying that the real conflicts between tribal identities. So certain tribes were ascendant culturally, and then they were seen as the oppressor groups. And there was a lot of tension between these tribes. And they were saying, and that's really hurting the church because we're trying as Christians to bring people together across these tribal lines, whereas critical theories in their context were dividing people up and according to the tribe they belong to. So yeah, it's, it's interesting how it does adapt to different contexts. We know that everyone is made in God's image, and we have certain things that, that are there, this you know sense of moral justice. As Christians, we believe because God put it there. How do you what approach have you seen be successful where you try and reach into that imago day in someone who embraces critical social justice, critical theory, and so forth, and say, you know what, this thing in there, I have a definition, I have a justification for that moral compass. The Christian worldview, the biblical worldview explains why that's there. They don't, or they have another justification for morality? The, the subjective I mean, standard? In the literature, I don't see them talk about it. So remember that this whole field of study, I don't think there's much overlap with analytic philosophy. I, do, I don't know, frankly, if hmm. go back far enough, but certainly the modern authors, they're just not even talking about things like metaethics. Like it's just, hmm. that doesn't enter the conversation at all. They take hmm. for granted that oppression is evil. They just take it for granted and then hmm. talk about social theory and who's oppressed and how they're oppressed. Right. But they never question where do these moral facts come from? What are moral facts? Nothing, zero, you know? So I think that is an opening where we can say, I totally agree that oppression, fine biblically, is evil and wrong. But how do you believe that? What do you mean when you say it's objectively wrong? And this is where critical theorists, people that adopted this worldview, they would differ from, say, the new atheists who might just be moral relativists or might be right. moral nihilists and might just say, yeah. I deny that moral facts exist. I just sure. choose to live my life this way. But no, there's nothing objectively right or wrong. And uh, you know, critical social justice would not take that route. They would say, absolutely, we believe certain things are objectively evil. But then you can go from there and say, OK, then what do you mean by objectively evil? What grounds that statement?
Right. Bring them back to a biblical worldview and do a comparative analysis and say, look, I've got an answer. Does your worldview have an answer? So the difficulty there might be that they might even characterize that kind of reasoning as sort of Western and masculine. I, I can't, so there's a quote from Anderson and Collins' book, Race, Class, mm-hmm. and Gender, where they say, the idea that objective truth is best reached only through rational thought is a Western and masculine idea, one that we will challenge throughout this book. They say the idea that objective truth is best reached only through rational thought is a Western and masculine idea. Now, that's where they're coming from. So from that perspective, if you say, like, well, why don't you try to justify these truth claims you're making? They'll say, you had such a Western masculine way of thinking about truth. (laughs) If that's a structure they want to destroy because it's some kind of hegemonic power structure, but that would annihilate their entire approach. Right, but they're very pragmatic. So you have to understand, this is why I said the motive force for this entire field is social justice. So, for example, take evidence, take statistics. When you look at how, say, critical race theorists deal with statistics or or just any kind of data, evidence, they do use it. They employ it. They're not like these postmodernists who are like, nothing's true, everything's true. No, no, those appeal to things like racial disparities in wealth or uh, police shootings. They'll appeal to them, right? But pragmatically... So if you then counter them and say, well, wait a minute, let's look at some more studies on, say, police shootings and kind of question that your use of those statistics, then they'll say, no, 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 you can't do that. You're just trying to get, basically, you're, <laughs> now you're using this data and quote unquote evidence to conceal a bid for power. You're just trying to avoid dealing with your white supremacy. I'm not accusing them of being disingenuous. I'm just saying that the way they think about everything is the end goal is a practical one, social mm. justice. Mm. And if I can get to social justice via evidence, analysis, you know, reasoning, great. Sure. But as soon as that those tools are used against social justice, I dismiss them as tools of oppression. Mm. Audrey Lord said, you'll never dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. It's implying <laughs> that you can't know. That was a really famous quote saying that, look, if you're trying right. to win this game they're playing using their own tools, you're playing into their hands. You have to just get rid of this whole way of thinking and use the tools that are most effective in destroying their oppressiveness and, and exposing their hegemonic power, which in often is lived experiences, narratives. And actually, in critical race theory, one of the major tenets of critical race theory is storytelling, narratives. Mm-hmm. What goes back to Gramsci's counter-hegemonic narrative. So the idea of presenting a counter-story that challenges the dominant common sense view of, say, criminal justice or merit. So Derek Bell, who's kind of the godfather of critical race theory, often wrote works of fiction, actual fiction, that were making some point he wanted to make. But they, sure. they were even an attempt at trying to make an argument. He was like, here's a story. And they're, but they, they were these compelling stories, but they were meant to undermine this approach to law that we take for granted. Mm. And you see that in, in all kinds of entertainment today, movies and stories and everything like that, that there's always some underlying worldview or message that's meant to kind of dismantle the culture. So have you found that the conversations with critical social justice people have been respectful and do they enjoy the dialogue? Are, are they looking for clarity? I know sometimes the the new atheist interactions got very hostile and kind of aggressive. 
what's the tone of the conversation in in these critical social justice discussions? Well, that's hard to say. I mean, the one thing about the new atheist movement was that they were very open to dialogue. They would love to get you on stage and debate you. And it wasn't, <laughs> that, that meme with the guy with the shirt that says, I'm an atheist, debate me. And it's like right. that typified the movement. They wanted to expose your religion as just superstition and nonsense. Yes. Whereas, unfortunately, what I found is that, and this is not just me, people across the culture who have tried to engage critical social justice in rational dialogue, public debate, they find that they just avoid it. They will not get on the stage with you and talk hmm. through these ideas rationally. It's very unusual. So Robin D'Angelo and Ibram X. Kendi are just known for refusing time and time again to get on stage and have a debate. They will be interviewed by people that are sympathetic to them, but sure. they really don't want to defend these. Because some of their views are just so transparently wrong that like, they make claims that are just absolutely not compatible with reason and evidence. Right. Ibram X. Kendi says clearly, repeatedly, that all racial disparities are due to discrimination worldwide. And you just mm. think about that for a nanosecond. You're like, no, because... <laughs> yeah, the, 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 I mean, this has been pointed out to him so many times by so many people. But everyone's like, in the U.S., the ethnic group with the number one largest median household income are Indian Americans. Indian Americans. I'm half Indian, by the way. So, oh, okay. You know, I guess, huh. Like it's good for me or good for my <laughs> ethnicity, or but but whatever you know. But but Indian Americans, that the median household income is six figure. The median, wow, wow. and the median a median income in the U.S. for all people is sixty five thousand a year. So wow. you know, Indian Americans have it's like sixty percent higher wow. median income. Wow. So is that is it an ethnic disparity? Fine, not racial disparity, but even Asians as a sure. racial group, Asians median is higher than whites on average. So is the disparity in median incomes for Asians versus white families, is that pro-Asian discrimination? Well, that's nonsense. No. Right. I mean, there are lots of reasons why that sure. disparity is, but one of them is presumably not that our society is anti-white and pro-Asian. And there are numerous examples like that. We were like this, but that statement is so transparently false. And again, numerous people have said to him, this is not true. Another thing he does is he says that all policies. Every single law, every single policy is either racist or anti-racist. There's no in between. Right, right, and if you right. think there is, you're racist. And he said, right. and you determine which is which by whether or not the law or policy produces racial equity, which means equal outcomes, or racial inequity, meaning unequal outcomes. And that determines mm -hmm. whether a law is racist or inequity. But people asked him, like literally every law, I think Ezra Klein asked him, well, what if we cut capital gains taxes? And he's like, that would be racist, right? I forget what it was, but it was, and it was purely <laughs> based on would it lead to different outcomes. I point out like, well, wait a minute, what we're saying is then if you were to abolish private property, that would be an anti-racist property. And if you were to have a policy that protected private property, that would be a racist policy because there's a wealth gap. So right. the, to get rid of a wealth gap, you just get rid of wealth. Right. We're all poor. And now it's right. anti-racist, but that's a terrible way to think about laws and policies which are just or unjust, at least somewhat based on inherently whether they procedurally treat people fairly, justly, right. independent of things like race, class, and gender. But he does not view laws that way. But again, he will not get on stage and have people ask him these hard questions. So I've experienced that a lot where I have been very open to dialogue with people who disagree with me, and it's hard to find people willing to, to dialogue about these issues.
Wow, Neil, I feel like we've covered, you know, 10 hours of content in <laughs> 25 minutes. This has been very stimulating and engaging. And as always, your comments and insights are spot on and biblical. And so thank you for sharing this time with us today. I'd like to ask you maybe to come back next time and continue the conversation on a few other topics. How would that work? Sure, that'd be great. Now, how about you? Have you seen the immersion of the concepts of critical social justice into every aspect of your experience over the last year? Have you struggled to understand it, let alone explain your resistance to its ideologies? Make sure you sign up for our annual apologetics conference on October 8th and 9th at our website, theambassadorsforum.com. Topics like critical social justice, a biblical worldview, atheist arguments against the Bible, science, philosophy, and more will be covered from a biblical perspective by excellent teachers. It will be a virtual conference this year with lots of amazing speakers, including Neil Shenvey, Sean McDowell, Elizabeth Urbanowitz, and others. Finally, thank you for joining us on the radio today. You can join us every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. on True Talk 800 a.m. KPDQ. I pray that God will raise you up in your own faith and send you out to share that faith with others in the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until next time, I'm Roy Swart. May the Lord bless you and keep you.